Relating to Self. A podcast that helps you create a better relationship with yourself. Hey, I'm Joachim. Welcome. Do you realize that there is only one relationship that you will always be in? The relationship with yourself. Improving that relationship changes everything. On this podcast, I share my thoughts and I invite real people to have vulnerable conversations about how they relate to themselves and what we can learn from that. Hello, Joachim. Hey, Brian. Welcome back. It's great to see you. Yeah, so you're here to ask me questions. That's right. I've been a guest once on this podcast, and I am going to turn the tables and ask you questions about how you relate to yourself. And although you're a relatively new friend, I consider you a close friend. We met only last summer in London. And since then, we've had quite a beautiful interaction. You've been on my podcast. Uh, we've spoken many times. We've exchanged voice notes and epistolary projects. And I hope there's a lot more of that kind of thing to come. And I've gotten the chance to see you quite a few times in that space, even though we are based in different parts of the world. Yeah, um, it's been a really interesting journey and I can't wait to see what else is coming. And just for anyone listening, I am a writer working on philosophy in London. I work for the British Library and I've got a podcast called Clear Story. And yeah, that's me at the moment. I run a book club in London and host other kinds of events. So <laughs> yeah, but now on to you, Joachim. How do you relate to yourself now as opposed to in the past, let's say. Mm. I guess that's the most difficult question you could ask me <laughs> to start <laughs> with. Because it kind of encompasses everything, right? Like the whole framework of what I see as relating to self. Um, I think I will answer the question from the perspective of maybe what has changed since we first started interacting. Great. Uh, because I've, I've been through a couple of iterations of like speaking about how that was compared to when I was young and growing up and all of that kind of stuff. So I think maybe, yeah, looking at the last year, I think what has changed is two things mostly. On the one hand, I have personally experienced the amazing power of collective practice. So what I mean is I used to see relating to self mostly as a solo practice, it's like as in my meditation, my rituals, my journaling, and you know, all that kind of stuff. And I've, in the past year, I've woken up to this idea that when you do that work in, in groups of people who are doing similar work at the same time, not necessarily with each other, but just individually in a space where lots of people do that work together, that changes everything. And it becomes a lot more powerful and also easier. So that's one thing. The other thing is that my perspective on my ontology, if you will, um, the idea of what I am has shifted mm. more away from the mind or from the one who perceives more towards the body, more towards the, the physical form and all its manifestations and all the processes that are happening in this physical form. And more and more, I regard the mind and all the processes that run on top of that, that, that we are kind of aware of as emergent properties 
of that physical reality. So I think those have been the two main changes in my relationship with myself since last year. Right. So the first one, both are fascinating, by the way, but the first one, you're saying it's not so much group practice together as in sort of being alongside people who are on, would you say, similar paths or, or their own path maybe to, to different places? Yeah. So what I mean is it's, it's not like an actual group practice, like circling, for example, right? Like right. circling, you sit in a, in a circle and everybody participates in the same moment to the group dynamic. What I mean is more like a, a room full of people who all of them are going through, for example, shedding emotional layers as a, as a process. Okay. And so you're not interacting with the others. You're just sitting in your corner doing your work. But because of the group dynamic, seeing and hearing others around you go deeper and shed more, it kind of makes it easier for you or no, well, it made it easier for me to go deeper into that process myself as well, compared to when I'm just doing it on my own. Right. And so are those facilitated events like you would kind of join together for this purpose or is it um, something that happens kind of spontaneously or? <laughs> <laughs> I, I wish the latter were true, but yeah. no, it's, it's mostly, yeah, it's organized, facilitated spaces, right? Okay. And I'm not saying the spaces are necessarily designed for emotional shedding. They could be spaces for other things, such as exploring boundaries, exploring desires, exploring self-expression, like any kind of space that has kind of like a focus on being present and being with what is can be conducive, I think, to improving the way I go through my own process. Got it. Because maybe I feel less... It's, it's really strange. Like there's this combination of being witnessed by others and at the same time, the focus not being on me. Yes, I can relate to that. And so... Do you do this in silence or is there communication as well? Well, it depends. I've had both. Um, okay. I've been in those kind of spaces where I went through my own process in silence with myself. Right. While other people are exploring other things. But I've also been in spaces where the process was held and where the process was facilitated in itself, the, the emotional release, for example. Um, and... I guess that makes it even easier because then there's um, something like a, a guided meditation or a guided voice. And maybe there's even music in the background that is designed to make the process even easier. Like, for example, if you want to tune into your anger and express your anger, and then there's rage against the machine blaring loudly around you, that makes it a lot easier. And <laughs> that's somehow difficult to do at home, I guess, if, if you live in an apartment like I do. And so my other question is, how do I find out about these events? Or are they kind of intentional um, groups of people you know, or are they open to the public, for example? Like, can you just, is it, how do you find out about them? I'm curious. Mm. Well, none of these events that I've been to where I've experienced this have been branded specifically as like, this is what we're going to do, right? Okay. Um, so the kind of events that I'm describing, I've mostly experienced um, in the kind of like sex positive community. Um, right. So temple nights, um, gatherings, festivals, um, workshops, that kind of thing around, I guess I would call it something like, self-leadership or even sovereignty, or it's a difficult world because it's been co-opted a bit by a certain group of people. But sovereignty. This, yeah, sovereignty. Okay. This, yeah, this, this idea of being a fully empowered human being mm. with agency, right? And then having a space to explore what that means to you, where it feels safe to explore that because others are actively involved in setting boundaries, expressing themselves, you know, that, that it's, it's kind of like a consent culture in general. I think that's a, a good. Interesting. I haven't it. heard the term used that way. So does it mean kind of freedom, autonomy in the presence of others or 
Yeah, could you say a little bit more about what it means for you? Yeah, what it means for me is that it's a space where, or those are spaces in which I'm able to examine what it is that I actually want as a human and then find the freedom to express that without judgment or like learning to not judge myself for my desires, whatever they are. And then in expressing that to others, noticing that others don't necessarily judge me for them either. And receiving the no, being met with a request that is denied doesn't mean that someone else is judging or even pushing you away. Right. It's just that they, in that moment, do not want to do the thing that you thought of doing or something like that. Right. And those spaces have helped me tremendously in what I would call my own spiritual growth, like understanding more of who I am, what's holding me back in expressing myself fully. And I think I have been able to move towards a richer version of myself because of that. Mm. You mentioned spiritual growth and spirituality is something that's been very much on my mind for the past few years, but I'm curious what the word spiritual means to you. Yes. The dreaded question. Thank you. Brian. <laughs> I've been, I've been trying to kind of like find a definition for myself that, that I can find peace with because indeed it's quite a loaded term. I think the closest I can get right now is something like a fuller understanding of who and what I am and my place in whatever this is, the, the world, the universe. So it's about defining the self in relationship to everything else. I think mm. that's at the core of what spirituality means for me. Mm. Yeah, for me, I think a lot about new thoughts, actions, and behaviors in response to the same situations. So for me, there's a kind of element of, I don't know, um, yeah, just responding in a way that's more aligned with a kind of ideal that I hold rather than what I might do sort of habitually. Does that make sense? Yeah, 100%. And I think those things are actually the same from, from my perspective, mm. right? It's, it's coming to terms with the fact that we have values that we aspire to, you know, that are authentically ours, perhaps. And then there's this whole set of values and norms that was given to us by society, by parents, by caretakers, whomever. And I think a lot of my spiritual journey is about disentangling the two. It's about disentangling myself from what was pushed upon me and what maybe doesn't resonate with me, what I don't feel in integrity with what's holding me back. And of course, this is an internal struggle and it's all about the parts. But um, yeah, over time, I feel I'm able to step away more and more from behaviors that have been necessary in the past, but maybe no longer are in the present and more towards things that bring me what I want, mm. like joy and connection and beauty and, and those kind of things that I actually value. Mm. And so, yeah, I, I very much resonate with the new actions and, and new, new ways of engaging with the world and maybe responding more than reacting. Right. And I'm hearing sort of healing as well as self-actualization kind of in, yes. in your words. Yeah. Mm. 100%. I, I think that's, that's what healing means to me. It's mm. to be able to step away from those patterns that had formed in, in response to certain perceived negative situations and going more towards an intentional way of acting in the world. I think the moment I am healed, I am able to, from a place of agency, decide what I want to do. Yes. Instead of fall back on patterns that have kept me safe in the past. Yes. And I can see why being with others would make some of that an easier process than maybe solo meditation or something like that. 
Yeah, well, there's always both, right? It's like for me, the, still, I remain convinced that the relationship I have with myself on the inside, the way I talk to myself, my inner dialogue, the way I treat myself, the way I allow myself certain things or hold back is defining for how I'm able to interact with the world and with others. Um, but it's true that at a certain point, a certain level of the work can only be done with others. In practice. Because once, right? once I'm done, yeah, exactly, in practice. It's in, like, in life, it's like right? the old... Yeah, the, the old vision of like, yeah, sure, you can you can sit and meditate on the mountain as long as you want. But the true test of any spiritual development is in the world. When you're with your parents. With the people. <laughs> <laughs> For example, yeah. <laughs> so let's say I'm a listener and I'm like, this sounds like 100% what I want. How do I, how would I find out about these events? Or are they, you know, sort of by invitation or how can I you know, find out about these communities that do these kind of things? Well, to be fair, the, the kind of events I, I have been attending in the past year are not necessarily set up for this kind of growth. Right? <laughs> so I have made them like this for myself. Okay. So the whole the sex positive community, the, the whole scene of temple nights and such is mostly broadcasted through telegram groups and such, and is mostly centered around cities like Berlin, maybe Lisbon to lesser extent. Um, but I very much hope in the near future to be offering retreats myself oh, wow. that are specifically designed to help people go through that process themselves. Because I think there's there's so much necessary work to be done there that I want to contribute to that. And that's been one of the one of the results, I could say, of what has changed my relationship with myself in the past year is that I have now finally accepted this reality of me being a teacher or a guide and fully committing to making that a reality as well. Wow, I was going to ask you that if you had any kind of inclination to host events like the ones you're describing or yeah to to lead uh groups like that and it sounds like that's a a plan already <laughs> yeah um it most certainly is i don't know yet what that will look like though i think there's a lot of variables that i need to attend to but the desire is there i think the the conviction is there as well. And so what needs to be done is the emotional work of getting through all the limiting beliefs and the roadblocks and then making that a reality. But it is coming. And how do you intend to do that emotional work? Is that going to be in groups or solo or a combination? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. I think it's going to be a combination. Um, for now, since I'm back at home in Sofia, it's mostly been solo work for the past weeks. So I'm just mostly journaling, um, creating better questions for myself around this. Uh, what does it look like? Um, and then answering those questions and trying mm. to see what emerges. Uh, but yeah, I, I am actually um, also in the process of working through one of my biggest blocks, which is asking for help. Right. And so I have been actively reaching out to some people to help me with that process, to help me figure out how to make this a reality. Yeah, I was actually going to say, let me know if I can help. <laughs> Beautiful. You are now enlisted. Yes, either with the emotional work or with the event, because I'm very interested in both. But I love to hear this. It sounds like you're becoming who you are. <laughs> <laughs> I love that framing. Yes, becoming who I am. Yeah, that's yeah. a good way to put it. Thank you. It's from Nietzsche. Um, the second part you mentioned was about the shift from mind to body and maybe a kind of primacy of body and making the mind a secondary emergent property or not, maybe not making it that, but having some sort of transition in that area. I'm very curious to hear whether that's something you've cultivated intentionally or something that seems to have happened, uh, 
you know, in some other way. Mm. Yeah, it was very much just something that happened. I did not anticipate this. Um, historically, I've always been very, let's call it mind-centered. And it took me a long time to get to a place where I had a healthy relationship with my body. And that's still something that I'm working on every day uh, to keep in touch with the body, to keep checking in with the body. And I think that this idea of the primacy of the body and the mind being more like a hole of mirrors mm. than like reflects and, and resonates things that actually happen in the body is something that I just naturally was converging towards because of certain experiences that I've been having. And it's like the, the more I sit with myself honestly and look at what's actually going on, the more I find that these are just processes from the body. And then the mind, usually post-factum, comes up with a story around them. But of course, if you don't notice the body first, then the mind seems to be the, the thing that matters. But now yes. that I notice the body more and more, I'm like, oh yeah, the, the mind just comes up with logical explanations, possible logical explanations mm. of stuff that happens in the body. And the problem, of course, is that the body is not one thing, right? It's like, yes. it's such a complex combination of different systems. And depending on where in the body I tune into, I kind of find different things that matter and, and different, maybe even impulses towards different things. Um, so I totally see why the mind exists or how it is a very useful device. But giving more attention to the body has helped me tremendously in, again, being a more truthful version of myself. So do you think it's been that attention to the body that has kind of shifted this for you? Yes, I do believe so. I believe everything... Well, I would never say everything always begins, but <laughs> everything always begins with awareness. Right? It's like, where do you put your awareness? Where do you put your attention? And it's certainly in practicing more body-based things that I have been able to shift my attention more to the body that I then became aware of what was happening in my body more and hence these new thoughts. And now I've come to the point where very often when I'm stuck with something in the mind, I don't even try to solve it in the mind anymore. <laughs> I just go straight to the body and I change things in the body. And changing things could be simple, like changing my physical posture, my position in the, in the space or, or my breathing or something like that, right? It's not complicated. And then usually the mind follows. And is this something you do in a kind of formal meditation practice or is it done throughout the day or both? Well, I haven't yet quite figured out what that would look like for my meditation practice because for my meditation practice now, I still very much just sit, right? Which is arguably the worst you could do from the perspective of the body. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really interested in exploring more body-based meditation methods. Um, I know some people I've met recently are into Qigong for, for that reason, kind of. Um, I'm still mostly exploring dance as a, as a body-based meditation form, which for me works well. But yeah, I'm, I'm curious there, what, what else is there? But so for now, I would say it's, it's throughout the day that I just try to be more aware of where my body is, what it is doing, and what I am doing to it. Mm. I find um, sitting meditation quite a good way to get in touch with the body because it's almost like other conditions and stimulus aren't changing as much. And so then some of the signals from the body get louder in a way. So there is some mileage maybe in, in, uh, in just sitting, but I'm very curious about the moving practices too. Yeah, I hear you. And I think you're right, of course, like the first step would be like to slow down and to quieten and to sit in stillness and to listen more. And then maybe things become more apparent. 
but then also I feel like the body in, in, in its very nature is a thing that is made to move, mm. right? It's, it's, it's this extremely mobile device yes. where everything in the body can move and there's so much beauty and, and pleasure and also interesting things happening with the body when it moves. And so, yes. yeah, like it's more like this idea also of getting away from the mind and then letting the body do its thing. Right. And if I get away from the mind and let the body do its thing, the body will never go to like, let's just sit for, for an hour. <laughs> that's, that's not what the body does. Mm. Yeah. I'm thinking of Schopenhauer because I'm reading The World as Well in Representation. And in that book, he's arguing for the primacy of the body, which he associates with the will. And the mind, I think the reason I'm thinking of that is because he he associates the mind with representation. And when you said Hall of Mirrors, that made me think of this kind of, the way he regards it, which is as secondary to the, to the body. Uh, and yeah, I'm curious how you do practices related to the body during the day. If you're, you know, so you, you mentioned that you kind of do this in every situation. I'm not sure that I would have the body awareness to think as much about that. <laughs> and so I'm curious, like how you got into that uh, ability, let's say. Mm. To be fair, it's not something I intentionally chose to do, right? Right. Again, this is kind of like, from my perspective, something that happened to me, I think, thanks to my awareness training in, in meditation and thanks to using the body more from the perspective of letting the body do its thing. Okay. Right? And so as I did both of those practices consistently over time, I just noticed that my awareness of what's going on in my body just kept expanding throughout the day. But even right now, as I sit here with you, I notice there's some tension in my toes, for example, because I'm kind of like pushing them to the floor in a certain way that makes my knee more comfortable. <laughs> and it's kind of like, it's related, I feel, to this other idea of like looking at your whole field of vision, not, not narrowing your field of vision to the one thing that you're paying attention to, but kind of like expanding your awareness to everything that you see. Yes. And... It's a similar feeling, but then for the body. Right. So kind of expanding awareness out from what would maybe be the default focal point or something like that. Yes, something like that. Yeah, McGilchrist talks about macular vision, the kind of very focused part in the middle of vision as being associated with the sort of left hemisphere, whereas the awareness around the outside, the peripheral vision is associated with the right hemisphere. So kind of big picture thinking as opposed to fine-grained detail maybe. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I'm curious about that because I've done a little bit of meditation, you know, paying attention to sounds and silence and trying to bring awareness outside of, you know, the immediate body into kind of like, how do I sense what's in the room? How do I I often have like a, if there are other people or living beings in the room, then I often have like a, even with my eyes closed, a quite strong sense of their bodies as well. And then I've thought about, yeah, just like expand, you know, proprioception, like how we know where our body is in space seems to extend out into knowing where other things are too, or that, that boundary is kind of permeable. Um, and so that's one that I've done, which is just like a meditation on what are the boundaries of my body? How do I know where my body is in space? And how do I know where other living things are? And how is that different? <laughs> I'm curious if you have any practices like that for kind of decentering this um, focal point that you might, that we might normally inhabit. Mm. Yeah, the one thing that comes to mind but maybe it's not entirely the same because it's not so much about noticing bodies or spaces, but more like paying attention to 
what it is that my mind is attached to. Mm. And I've noticed that sometimes in group situations, smaller groups usually, where a conversation unfolds, I am more and more able to kind of notice the desire of a part of me to express itself or to say something or to be seen in a certain way by the group. Mm. And then I also notice that that part becomes less and less important in the bigger picture. And that sometimes I sit in those kind of situations with say like four or five other people and a conversation emerges and I have all kinds of thoughts that could be relevant to the conversation, but I am absolutely unattached to expressing them. And it feels almost as if there is a meta-organism made up of the four or the five people. And I kind of trust that whatever needs to be said will come up from them regardless of if I am the one expressing these things. Mm. And I think this is related to this idea of where does the body end or where does the nervous system end? And what is the role of the other living things in, in my neighborhood? Um, yeah, the, 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 the image that comes to me is something like the, the mycelial network that exists mm. in forests that we don't see the connections, but they are there, something like that. Right, and a kind of meta-consciousness that comes out of the group. Mm. Yes. So we've talked a little bit about these group practices, and we've talked a little bit about... Yeah, the physicality or the physical element. Um, and yeah, I wanted to go back to this idea of self-realization or sort of coming into your own as a teacher. Like how, how do you see these uh, three strands, if they are three strands, as, as uh, braiding together? <laughs> wow, beautiful question. Thank you. The only possible answer is I don't know at this point, right? Um, I do believe there really is something to this Nietzsche thing you said earlier of like becoming who I am. I think I've had a big realization last summer that me being a teacher or a guide is already true for many people around me. Agreed. And <laughs> and I am simply the one who was resisting that for a variety of reasons, right? And actively deciding to not resist this anymore, but to kind of lean into it mm. is, is the shift that is happening in me. And that means dissolving the, the perceived negative ideas that I have around teachers or guides in general or specifically me being a teacher or a guide or, you know, whatever the dark side of that could be and working through those shadows. And I do think this is related at least to this idea of the primacy of the body, because it feels like this resistance that I have towards being a teacher or a guide comes from the mind. Mm. They're just stories. Whereas the body kind of is already there. My body feels great in situations where I explain something to someone or I show them something or I inspire someone around me with a story I tell or something like that. My body really relaxes in those kind of situations and I feel my, my breath kind of like being deeper and I just feel great in my body. So it's, it's really, it's a thing of the mind, this resistance. So you feel like you need new stories to support what's already real in your body? 100%, yes. Which is also why I've been dabbling slowly into um, personal myth-making. This very kind of, um, well, it's, <laughs> I don't know if it's postmodern. Uh, I guess it's post-postmodern. Okay. Um, <laughs> I've not come across it, so tell me, yeah. tell me more about that. Well, it's it's basically Jung, really. It's this Jungian idea of like, okay, so what if the bigger cultural narratives or cultural myths 
that we used to have are kind of dissolving and there is no direct alternative for them. How do you create meaning? How do you create a kind of a, a personal myth for yourself? And it becomes the kind of, like, I guess the mission is to create a religion of your own that works mm. for you, specifically from the already existing patterns and images and symbols that are present in your subconscious. And it, so it's, it's more a question of digging than of imagining creating. It's a question of giving space to the subconscious and understanding what's there and then working with what's there to create a coherent narrative that you can then use to achieve whatever your goal is. In, in, in my case now, like how can I be a teacher in integrity and in a way that I can serve the world in, in some way? And then working backwards, what are the the narratives that would help me do that with the symbolism that is already present in my subconscious. So it's an act of excavation rather than a work of fiction. Yes, very much so. So mm -hmm. I, I think, and well, this is interesting. I mean, this is something we could go very deep into, but I think that most creativity actually is that. Mm. I think very little creativity is a pure act of invention in some way. There's always this kind of like digging into whatever was before and, and whatever comes up. So I think that's, that's essentially what being human is, right? Like we, we absorb all this information uh, knowingly and mostly unknowingly, and then we do something with it. And the act of creation is usually kind of like recombination of things that we've already seen around us. And yeah, so it's, it's that, but then also maybe combined with this idea of it's not just for me, it's a narrative that places me in the world, in a community, in a society, even in the universe. And I want to do that intentionally to serve. So it's an active service. Yes, very much so. Yeah, a minute ago, I wanted to ask you whether it felt more, you mentioned leaning in. I wanted to ask if it felt like surrender. Ultimately, that's the goal, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not there yet fully. Um, I think, yeah, there's always two, two components, right? There's acceptance and then surrender. And I think for me, at least in my process now, I'm still in the accepting part. I'm like, oh yes, I, I see this is happening. I see that this is the path. I see that this is how my life is evolving. I'm learning to accept it, but I haven't surrendered to it yet. So right. it's not a full reality yet to me. And you're doing active work as well, I guess, with the myth-making in order to align yourself with that path, would you say? Yes, exactly. And it's, it's more than that, actually. It's aligning myself with myself kind of like in integrity mm. but at the same time it's also figuring out a way to how to speak about this yes because that's one of the difficult things i find is like i can see myself as a teacher or a guide but then the question is how do i tell people about this yes because most of the words most of the terms i encounter in this sphere feel difficult for me to use like i would never say i'm a spiritual teacher right because that I think in the existing sphere of, of all the memes and the words that are out there, that would mean something that I am not. I understand. <laughs> yes. So the, the, the myth-making is also part of the messaging in a way, and it become, becomes part of the marketing almost, as in like, how do I find the people who would be able to be served by me, basically? I've struggled with these kind of labels as well, in particular with the words writer and the word uh, the word philosopher, uh, because I feel like it's one that <laughs> I don't like the kinds of people who call themselves philosophers, I think. Um, <laughs> but then when someone says, oh, your that. book is about philosophy, I also think, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it actually is philosophy. It's not really about philosophy, you know? And so there's a kind of tension there about like, how do, how do I communicate it? 
And the, this act of community, this is one of the hardest things is to translate experience into words and new experience, right? And so you're talking about an act of self-discovery, self-exploration and excavation of archetypes. And in that process, you'll experience things that then need to be rendered into <laughs> this, this language thing in a way that is actually both, you know, it's both true to the experience and it doesn't feel cliche or something like that, right? See, that's one of the many things I love about you, Brian. You get me. Like you, you immediately understood where I was going with this. I think in my story now, the interesting part is that this process is actually quite related or close to what I want to take people through. Right. Right. This this reinvention of the self, the the reimagining of the ego narrative, and thus also the personal myths, is key. I think to any kind of spiritual development or call it personal growth or increased agency or anything like that. So I'm curious in this case, for you, that seems to not be the case with these labels of philosopher or writer, right? Because that's not what you're trying to give people. Right. Um, so, so yeah, uh, it sounds like we need to do similar work in terms of letting go of those potentially negative stories that we hold around those labels and what they could mean and then embrace them and maybe reinvent them by doing. Yes. And I think, you know, your emphasis on service and action is really important because that's how we reveal what's going on. And so, yes, there's always going to be language around it, but I think people will sense that you are the real deal in the sense that you've been through this journey and want to take others through it. And I also think that the focus on kind of getting beyond the ego, it almost, I, I think there's a reason that it's the kind of first element in the Eightfold Noble path, right? In Buddhism, uh, is sila, morality, because if you start the spiritual work without nailing that thing down <laughs> and kind of focusing on reducing the ego, you can have all sorts of, of problems of um, what you might call spiritual materialism or, you know, because this kind of path gives you sort of power over, <laughs> over, you know, yourself and others. And so in order to use that responsibly, it's, it's a case of kind of doing it purely as service, right? Without any ulterior motive. And I think that if you do that, it comes through, or at least that's my hope. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I hope the same. <laughs> <laughs> So you mentioned, yeah, that you're thinking of teaching. Would you say that the teaching is, is quite related to your own path or do you think it's a kind of general, do, do you think everyone needs to go through this or is it people that have, um, let's say particular traumas or, you know, um, something similar to the, 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 upbringing that you had, let's say? Mm, great question. Love it. I believe it's something like what I mean with teaching is not that I will give anyone a method or a path to enlightenment. It simply means that people seem to seek me out for the way I think about things or the way I see things, and that seems to help them. So the way I framed it for myself is something like every single human is going through their own process and all those processes are different and they probably all need different things. At the same time, they're also adjacent because we're all human and we struggle with similar things in the end. So even though I believe there is no such thing as like a universal method or a universal path, 
I think we can inspire each other by telling our own stories and how we've overcome challenges. And also, I want to focus a lot on creating the spaces in which people can go through their own processes more easily. I think that's one of the things that has been difficult for me is that in going through my process, the world isn't set up for that. It's so easy to fall into a life where there's so much doing and so much stuff is going on that you kind of never think about your process or, or what's happening or what's unfolding inside of you. So creating spaces and creating retreats where people can then go through their own process, but with others, I think is very powerful. And that's the kind of teaching that I have in mind. Mm. I love that. What question would you like to be asked about relating to self that no one has yet asked you? Oh, wow, that no one has yet asked me. <laughs> the first thing that comes up is like, oh my God, I'm not that creative. <laughs> like, because I've been asked so many questions about this. I think there's something about, basically something I only can know, right? right. And, and that is this, this unique, specific combination of how I came to be myself through not just my traumas, but then also my education as a musician and then my my career as a musician for two decades and then my career as an entrepreneur for another decade. And then the the intertwining of all the ideas that exist in me because of my upbringing and my art and my entrepreneurial self. Mm. I think there's something there that gave rise to these ideas around relating to self that I am still even not clear about, that I am still exploring. But I do notice that in whatever field I go down in, like I was reading this book about marketing last week by Seth Godin, and I, I really like the way he thinks and writes. There's a lot of clarity there. And I can't help but notice how a lot of those ideas are very related to the things I believe about relating to self. Interesting. And the same happens when I deeply speak with people about what I value, for example, in Renaissance polyphony. Mm. Right? So, yeah, there's a thread there throughout the whole thing that I am still unraveling and that people usually don't ask me about because they don't have the bigger picture of what my life has looked like. Yeah. I feel like there's a lot in there that I could ask you, but maybe I'll ask you, yeah, how does... Renaissance polyphony relate to your entrepreneurial path? Oh, interesting. I, I hadn't framed it that way. I was more like, they're both related to my ideas around relating to self. Yes. Right? Yeah. So I think the, interesting. the, the question okay, I so really want to answer... another link yeah. in there. Okay, yes, answer yeah, that one. Yeah. <laughs> the question I really want to answer is like, how is Renaissance polyphony or more specifically singing Renaissance polyphony related to my ideas around relating to self. Yes. Yeah. And I think and then there, the entrepreneurial one. <laughs> yes. Okay. So I believe there is something about the way in which I see humans as all having their own path and having their own agency that is related to the way in which in polyphony, every singer has their own melody that is kind of meaningful in itself, but becomes supremely meaningful in combination with the others. So it's this, this lack of hierarchy within the musical framework. At the same time, there is the idea of, I would call it following the breath. The music in Renaissance polyphony, in vocal music, the structure always follows the breath because that's the limit of the phrasing you can make. I mean, you can cheat a bit by breathing in between, but it's really very often about like, how long is a breath? So the structural framework for the music becomes linked to breathing, which is a very relating to self kind of thing. The wow. breath is so one of the basic principles of why I'm alive, right? Mm. And at the same time, it becomes about resonance. 
it becomes about how voices resonate with one another because there's this beautiful, very physical sensation when you are really singing in tune with someone in something like a, a consonant interval, like a fifth or something, then your physicality, your throat, literally starts resonating with the sound someone else is making. Wow. And that's a very interesting and peculiar sensation. And that also, I think, is really linked to my ideas around how I relate to my own voice and the way I use it and how I relate to my own body. And so, yeah, I, I think, that, and there's probably a lot more, but mm. yeah, there's a lot of beauty there in, in, the, in the singing of polyphony. So it's leaderless. So in other words, kind of has no ego in a sense. Well, not necessarily, because most in most cases, the music I've performed had a leader. Right. Um, because there's also someone then making decisions about maybe the flow, like where it's going or things like that. Mm -hmm. um, but it's it's definitely a lot less hierarchical than, say, 19th century orchestral music. Right. And it's rhythmic and it's resonant. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah. And it's also very human. It's very human shaped. Mm. It's linked deeply with life. Yeah. And in a way, it's, I would say it's a meditation practice. Yes. <laughs> very often for a me. A group meditation practice as well. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> so it comes into that physicality as well as yeah. group practice. Yeah. And interestingly, this summer I led a workshop at a festival that I attended where I finally realized one of my dreams, which was to do a kind of contact dance on Renaissance polyphony. Wow. Yeah. So it's again, it's coming back to what I was saying before, this primacy of the body, like the, the body moving. I've always felt intuitively when I was singing Renaissance polyphony that my body wanted to move on that music but that was never allowed because I was supposed to stand still on stage you know and then now that I have more freedom in myself I'm like yeah now I can allow myself to do that with others so I hosted this workshop in which I played a specific uh, piece that I like the Lamentations of Jeremie by Orlandus Lassus and then I played one one of the fragments of that over and over so that people kind of could get used to the structure of it. And then we explored different ways of finding our own inner body language for that music. And then also doing that in contact with others, like what that looked like, having a polyphony of dancing, so to speak, on top of the polyphony of music. And yeah, it was wonderful. Wow. And how does your entrepreneurial path relate to relating to self? I think that has a lot to do with self-sufficiency and autonomy. And this idea of being an entrepreneur very much grew in me because I grew tired of being dependent on others or in other structures or institutions for both my financial situation, but also for the organization of my daily practical life. And as a musician, yeah, I didn't have much agency in either of those. So examining that and thinking about how can I gain more agency, I automatically ended up in a position where like, yeah, if I'm an entrepreneur, if I have my own kind of venture that produces value for people, I can decide where I am, how I work, with whom I work and I can set my prices kind of that's that's the idea and so this relates to the idea of relating to self as in it's taking responsibility for crucial parts of your life instead of entrusting them to existing structures or other people which happens when you have a job and that has shown me that there were many other ways in which I wasn't taking responsibility for myself. 
because it's one thing to do that in the in the physical practical world like for your finances or the organization of your work life but then suddenly i was confronted with the fact like wait am i taking full responsibility for my emotions or am i still also kind of like blaming others or giving others power over how i feel and yeah that that forced me into a lot of very uncomfortable self exploration mm. i'm hearing sovereignty again autonomy freedom i'm curious if you resonate with either the idea of negative freedom or positive freedom more are you familiar with this from i think isaiah berlin talks about it but it's in eric from as well so negative freedom being freedom from constraints and positive freedom being freedom to self actualize maybe yeah i don't have many thoughts about this i think both are in a constant dance with each other mm. i think it's very difficult to have the freedom to self actualize when you are not free from constraints um in my life certainly i would say that both have evolved at the same time in removing myself from constraints i then came into a position where i was forced to take more responsibility and to take care of my self actualization it wasn't like a moral imperative or anything i i could have not done that but in practice i feel yeah the two are very much interlinked do you feel there's a tension between the desire for autonomy and independence in the entrepreneurial part of your life and the kind of dependence that's required for polyphony mm. i'm not sure i would frame what we need for polyphony as dependence okay or at least like let's make a nuance there's codependency and there's interdependency yes right and i think i've experienced most of my non-entrepreneurial work life as codependency okay or even unilateral dependency <laughs> which is possibly even worse um I think polyphony needs interdependency. Right. Polyphony needs a network in which equal people come together to contribute to something that's bigger than themselves. Right. And I think that's a beautiful structure that humans can create. So would you say the entrepreneurial path was about freedom from codependence or yeah, you said unilateral dependence in order to become a kind of independent agent which can then meet as an equal with other autonomous agents and kind of shared projects or yeah i think that's a pretty good way to put it and i think when you put it that way what it comes down to again is power mm. it's it's not being subject to power but showing up as an empowered agent right and i suppose sharing power or or enabling encouraging others such that the power of the group is greater than the power you might be able to to generate on your own solo mission is that feeling like part of what what's going on for you right now yeah i think my my path is a lot also about just empowering individuals showing people the way in which they could be more powerful and then hopefully i guess the the underlying motive there is that once that happens then more people around have the ability to show up in an empowered version of themselves to then create interdependency networks that could be so much more than if they show up as you know potentially codependent or unilaterally dependent units yeah i love that as a goal and yeah it resonates a lot with the things that i've been thinking about 
how do I want to be in the world, but almost by definition of being in the world and part of the world, it ends up being a question of relating to others, right? Which is not what do I in my isolated bubble decide that I am, but how do I first relate to myself authentically and then become better at serving others, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, you say it very well. <laughs> Is there anything else you'd like to say before we close this one down? <sighs> yeah, I would like to convey an invitation, an invitation to help. If you're listening to this, and you have any thoughts you'd like to share with me about how I could show up to you specifically as a teacher or a guide, or what it would be that you would look forward to, or that you need that I perhaps could provide, I would love to hear that. So if that's the case, uh, write me an email at joachim at relatingtoself.com. So that's J-O-A-C-H-I-M at relatingtoself.com. I will post a link also in the show notes. I would, at this point, I welcome anything from anyone because, yeah, it's just such a, such a difficult transition for me <laughs> to go through. And so, yeah, that's the one thing that I would like to request from the world. Thank you, Brian. Amazing. And well done. I know how hard it is to ask for help. It's been a pleasure uh, speaking to you today, Joachim. Always, Brian, always. Okay, until next time. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe to the podcast. You can also read more of my thoughts on Twitter. I will post a link in the description. And if you are interested in improving your relationship with yourself, please subscribe to my email list at relatingtoself.com. I'll then send you meditations, rituals, practices, and more of these beautiful conversations. Thanks. <laughs>